Ladies and gentlemen, in the blue corner, standing at a sleek 5'11", 245 pounds, the tumultuous tempest of technique, Thomas Lilly. And in the red corner, at a curvaceous 5'11", 315 pounds, the jovial juggernaut of judgment, John Cheryl Sheridan. A meeting of the masters of mastication turn your attention as they delve deep into all things lifting and more. This is Peak Speak. And we're back with exciting news. Yes, we are now professional. We have a sponsor for the show, which is awesome for us, but even more awesome for you. Indeed, because who doesn't love a sweet, sweet online shopping discount code? And in this case, it's an online shopping discount code that gets you delicious coffee delivered to your doorstep. From our good friends, Prism Coffee, who are four Canberra lads who I've known for a while. Uh, who've all worked in and around the specialty coffee industry for some time now and now uh, out on their own they've got a roaster they're roasting beans uh, and just generally kicking ass with delicious coffee so john how do the people get this amazing <laughs> discount you speak of go to their website which is prismcoffee.com.au pick from the couple of different blends and some single origins that they've got you can get it ground you can get it in whole beans if you prefer to grind your own they've got all of the options uh, and then you use the code PeakSpeakCoffee in the discount bit of the shopping cart and uh, you'll get a sneaky 10% off and it'll rock up on your doorstep in some amount of time I don't remember exactly what it is but I think they express post everything so hopefully quickly perfect amazing well, and that's it. Without further ado, here's the episode. Yeah. Presented Enjoy. by Thomas Lilly and John Sarah and Baby Cry in the Background, not included. <laughs> like you sneeze. Okay, perfect. Well, that's going to be the start of the podcast officially. Um, so we're back for another episode of Peak Speak. Uh, I have replaced John today with a much smarter and better looking human, Zoya uh, Hushja. No, wait, I screwed that up. Hushja. Hushja. That's fine. It's, yeah. can, you say, can you say it for the people, please? It's Hushja. Okay, perfect. Perfect. So uh, I'm joined with Zoya today because we're up to like episode 90 and I'm always playing this, I'm a nutritionist card, but we've never actually done an episode on nutrition. And to be fair, uh, I finished my degree in 2011 and I've only practiced for a few years since that. So I am not up to date with all the nerdy scientific sort of side of things. So if I wanted to talk about nutrition, I'd be far more comfortable talking with someone who actually knows their shit. And that's why we got Zoya. Um, I noticed you're drinking a cup of potentially coffee. Is it coffee? Yes, definitely coffee. Well, because we're a sponsored podcast now, I have to plug our coffee sponsorship and say, you should try Prism Coffee Co. It's fantastic. Use the code PeakSpeak and you'll get a sick discount. All right. Well, yeah. enough of the, uh, the, the shameless plugs. Um, Zoe, can you give us a bit of an intro? Who are you? What's your background, both training and education? Um, let's start with that. Yeah, cool. So I... I'm living in Melbourne and I'm a dietitian and sports dietitian. Um, so let's start with that. So I did a bachelor's of human nutrition at La Trobe University. I kind of always knew I wanted to get into research. 
Um, so I did an honours year and then I did my master's of dietetics. So that allowed me to become a dietitian. Um, and then a few years later, so after a bit of work experience, working clinical, working in food, um, food industry, I then uh, applied to do my PhD. So I'm almost finished doing my PhD at the moment. So it's two and a half, three years in now. And I'm about three, three months off completing that. Um, so in terms of uh, my sporting history, so I'm actually a strong woman competitor and I've competed in the Arnolds for the last couple of years. Um, I won Victoria's Strongest Woman last year. Um, for yeah, Victoria's Friends Woman, and yeah, that's that's about it. I've played a range of sports, mainly strength sports, but I've played gridiron. I was the running back in our team as well. Um, I got quite a few injuries from that, so I decided to yeah. stop. <laughs> um, so yeah, I've been fit and active my, my whole life, and I guess that's what kind of really drew me to sports nutrition. And that's where my PhD is in as well. So I'm actually looking at ageing athletes. So um, we're looking at uh, master's athletes, which obviously master's, that term is different depending on the sport. Mm. Um, can be 30, like myself. Um, so, yeah, looking at 50 plus and ways that we can prevent what is known as age-related muscle loss and muscle strength, um, known as sarcopenia. Um, and I'm looking at nutrition and exercise interventions and whether they can work synergistically um, using whole foods. So we know protein supplementation is really good for muscle hypertrophy, mm -hmm. um, but I'm looking at um, whole food products that are easily accessible for everyone like dairy. So yeah, almost finished that. Yeah, cool. So how many, how many total years of study does that put you at between the <laughs> bachelor, the master's and now the PhD? I think 11. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, so I've been almost. I've been studying for more more than I haven't been studying. If that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Um, we were just saying before you're you're kind of at the end now, right? You're finishing off your thesis, so it must be uh very rewarding and feel very nice to be coming towards the end of that. Yeah, and I mean, so my study was pretty intense as well. So mm. I ran clinical trials. So. I mean, the highest level of studies that you can do, which is a randomized controlled trial. Mm -hmm. um, I had four different groups. Um, everyone came in three times at least um, over 12 weeks and I had 54 participants. So you can imagine how many hours in the lab and I did everything. So I did strength testing, um, fitness testing. So we did VO2 max um, blood taking. I analyzed the blood like yeah, from start to finish, I did absolutely everything. So at the moment, you know, being in lockdown, it's pretty, it's, it's quite nice to <laughs> sit down and not, not be in the lab and moving around too much. Yeah, of course. So the work experience that you did once you graduated with your, your master's in dietetics, um, you mentioned that was in the food industry. Uh, what sort of stuff were you doing there? Um, so I worked with the Grains and Legumes Council. Um, I was living in Sydney at the time. And um, essentially it was more like public health. So how mm -hmm. we can promote, you know, healthy whole grains and health, healthy um, grain, uh, legumes so that the population can get more of it. So just it's more about education. Mm -hmm. I also, because um, my honours was actually looking at 
uh, the genetic influences of caffeine metabolism, actually. Okay. Um, in soccer players, I then worked for a genetic company for a year, um, helping them uh, create personalized diets based on your genes. So, yeah, there's an interesting mix of work yeah, yeah. there. But, yeah. yeah, you've really been around the chumps. That's awesome. <laughs> um, on, the, uh, on, your, uh, on the subject of your PhD stuff, uh, so I'm uh, working with a lot more masters people now than I ever have in the past. And I'm curious, um, you know, there's, is, is there sort of a, is there sort of a defined tipping point where, you know, the uh, I guess the stress or the fatigue that you can put through muscles uh, outweighs the recovery. So, like you get to a point where you're going to recover far less than you're able to, you know, create that stress and then adaptation slows down. Is there a defined point or is that kind of different for, everyone yeah that's a really good question and it's the thing with this whole um aging um the sarcopenia is it's so multifactorial and they're Mm. not exactly sure what what is the pinpoint of the cause because there's hormones um environment obviously um diet um and just like the biology of aging Mm. um, based on the literature and keep in mind, this is not necessarily active adults, but um, we know that muscle mass (laughs) peaks at 30, 30 to 40, depending on the individuals. Um, And then there's just a steady progressive decline. And in the literature, when they actually, um, there's a lot of cross uh, cross-sectional studies and prospective studies where they, you know, look at these people at a certain time point and then compare, um, I guess, uh, depending on the participants. So they'll look at, you know, sedentary older adults and then active older adults. And they have compared um, power outcomes, strength outcomes, muscle mass. Mm-hmm. And over time and over the different, um, I guess, the, the age there's still a progressive decline even in the active old adults. It's just their set point is higher. So if you think about like Arnold Schwarzenegger, maybe ignore the fact that he's taken a whole load of um, performance-enhancing drugs compared to someone that's his age that hasn't lifted a weight and they still will decline at the same rate. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just, you know, Arnie's got such a, a bulk of muscle mass to begin with, so his set point is higher. So that doesn't really answer your question, but yeah, there's still a, a decline, but it's just not. Yeah. Depends. Yeah. I knew it was going to be a shit question, but a yeah. very, a very broad question. Maybe not a shit question. Uh, a very broad question, but uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to note how many factors are going to play into it because I'm, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate and coming from the position of a master's lifter who would read something like that and be, you know. Like you saying muscle mass peaks at 30, immediately I'm going to think, oh, shit, I'm on the downhill now. <laughs> so it's all bad news from here. Um, but there are so many factors that are going to play into it, right? It's- and, of course, they're not going to be, you know, there's no studies at the moment that are looking at, you know, following people in their 30s to 40s that are lifting. So mm. it, it could be completely different. And, um, you know, we know that resistance training is one of the best things to prevent muscle loss and muscle decline. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's consistently what I've been showing, even in my work. Um, like protein does help, um, especially with strength adaptations. Um, but um, for hypertrophy, it's, I mean, it can be really, you know, 
the, the more muscle you have doesn't necessarily mean strength. Mm-hmm. You know, so maintaining strength throughout your life is a lot more important um, than maintaining muscle mass because that's the difference of, you know, you being able to get out of a chair or not. Yeah. And when you get to your 80s, so. Mm. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, okay, well, then following on from, you know, the fact that you've done 365 years of study, um, I wanted to talk about uh, nutrition qualifications in Australia because uh, for those of listening who don't know, uh, I, have a, I have a bachelor in health science with a major in nutrition and then I was in public health. And then after that, I sat on a curriculum advisory panel for a number of years and did guest lecturing with QUT here in, in Queensland. Um, and one conversation that I had once I uh, had over and over and over, once I shifted from that sort of paradigm into, into coaching is people coming up to me and, and sort of asking, uh, I'm really interested in getting in nutrition coaching. Should I do this degree? And I find myself talking most of those people out of the degree inadvertently by giving them the information about the degree. And I think a lot of people look at like these nutrition degrees or a dietetics degree and not really understand what they're getting into. So they jump into it thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to coach people how to, you know, get shredded and get on stage and uh, count macros and all that sort of stuff. So I guess I wanted to, to hear your perspective on, you know, these, these qualifications, what they are, what they mean. Um, yeah. What do you think? I guess it just really depends on where you want to go with your nutrition. Mm. Um, so if maybe we'll talk about what the difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian is first. Mm-hmm. So a dietitian, all dietitians are nutritionists, but all nutritionists aren't dietitians, as confusing as that is. But essentially to be a dietitian, you have to have done um, a university recognized course, um, which there's a list on the Dietitians Association Australia. Um, and normally that's so that you can, um, I guess, treat and prevent uh, chronic disease, chronic and acute illnesses. Whereas nutrition, um, the the name of nutritionist is not safe. Like it's not um, regulated. Mm. So you can do a two day course in nutrition or, or a bachelor's like yourself and um, still call yourself a nutritionist. So there's no, the, the, the quality is, really not regulated and there's some and it's a shame because there's amazing amazing nutritionists that are doing really good in that space and then there's also people that don't really know what they're doing (laughs) and i guess in terms of if you're giving someone advice on nutrition like and prescribing them diet advice you need to know basic biochemistry and uh physiology um you don't necessarily have to be a dietitian to do that um but if you want to manage chronic and acute illnesses which the majority of the population have and to understand the interactions between uh certain medications and what you're prescribing um nutritionally um i think that's really important to understand um I guess it really depends on, yeah, what they want to do. And I think that a lot of, um, as we were talking before, strength coaches, you know, maybe sticking to their lane might be better and, um, you know, understanding that they, it's really important to not work out your scope. Mm. And because um, there's, there's so many other things that beyond, you know, macros aren't just everything, you know, mm. but it's, human behavior that you're working with as well and potentially especially 
you know, working with bodybuilders and strength athletes, there's a lot of issues around body dysmorphia and um, binge eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, so those things are definitely would be out of the scope of a lot of um, coaches that are just doing these two-day nutrition degrees. Yeah, for sure. So like it, 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 it highlights, I guess, some of the major differences between those two degrees in terms of like a, a, a not an accredited, but a proper nutrition degree and a, and a dietetics degree. Like you said, all dietitians and nutritionists. So we do the same things in terms of physiology, in terms of biochemistry, in terms of public health, where a dietitian then gets set apart is that you guys do medical nutrition therapy. So you know how to do one-on-one dietary prescription for specific illnesses and specific issues. You guys do uh, an element of psychology or counseling. Nutritionists don't do that. And like you said, all of that stuff is so important. Um, one of the later talking points I had was like, where do nutrition coaches in the industry tend to go wrong if they don't have formal qualifications? And it's a lot of that stuff. Like the actual, let's work out some calories and some macros and then make some changes along the way. That's fucking easy. Anyone can do that. Like, what, how do you recognize when things are going wrong? How do you recognize where this is coming from uh, if you don't understand all this sort of background uh, biology, biochemistry, psychology? If you don't understand those, how can you make the right steps? And people just end up doing guesswork. It's a, it's a big issue in the industry is people um, just having the confidence to say yes, just being like, yeah, I know how to do nutrition coaching and then get faced with someone who's got all these contraindications and all these, uh, you know, medications that they take and just putting in some guesswork. It's like, whoa, you don't want to be messing with that sort of stuff. Like you said, stay in your lane, work with someone who knows what they're doing. And the problem is that um, it's, it's, it seems that nutrition can be quite uh, risk-free like you know, prescribing a certain diet um, doesn't really often come with that much risk. But yeah, like you said, when people have a lot of chronic health issues or certain medications, like, you know, if people are on warfarin, they can't eat certain vegetables and, you know, and there's most people, most males in their, you know, 40s to 50s will be on that. Mm. So it's just, you know, considerations for that. Mm. Yeah, and that's just one example of so, 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 so many. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So many. Especially um, uh, now in the last sort of five to ten years, the popularity of, uh, or not the popularity, but I guess the emergence and understanding of things like FODMAP-related issues coming out and, and how sort of intense the protocols are to work those things out and people being like yeah i've worked with people that have fodmap issues before it's like i bet you don't know how deep that rabbit hole goes and how intense it gets Uh, well it's it's very intense because our lab so my supervisor um he works a lot in fodmap so we Mm. do a lot of gut health gut gut testing all that sort of thing and it's just you know, if someone's following a FODMAP diet for the long term, that's detrimental. You, need, you actually need um, a variety of FODMAPs. So FODMAPs refers to the undigestible part of carbohydrates. It's an mm-hmm. acronym. Um, and, you know, people might cut out certain FODMAP groups for forever and it's just it's detrimental to their health and their gut health. And people don't know that. And a lot of people that aren't across the literature and like that, that's new. That is like in the last 12 months, that stuff has come out. Mm. So it's, you know, you have to be really on top of it. Mm. 
Yeah, and it's yeah. not just what you read on bodybuilding.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I find it so interesting, like on, on issues like intolerances or like FODMAP issues, um, the kind of approach that's so extremist uh, in terms of dose response sort of stuff, like someone being like, okay, I might have an issue uh, with this particular branch of whatever type of food it is, cut it out completely rather than working out like where's my sensitivity lie um, and then working out all the contraindications of other foods. And like I said, it's such an intense process to work out exactly what's causing issues and yeah, it's full on. Um, Well, sorry, just on top of on that, the problem is also a lot of the time it can be stress induced and most, I think it's eight out of 10 times it's females Mm -hmm. um, and it's not necessarily, um, the food itself it could just be the the excess stress um because there was this study that was done um like a good example of a fodmap food is onions and garlic um so uh no one can actually digest them because cellulose it's but it causes major issues for some people and what they did this is going to sound really um gross but they they popped a balloon up people's um rectum and inflated the balloon and then uh, did brain scans on them. And people that were more in, uh, more inclined to have food sensitivities, their pain receptors in their brain lit up um, like a Christmas tree. Um, so there's definitely this like gut brain connection and mm. it can definitely, I guess, um, helps through stress management mm. as opposed to completely cutting out the foods. Yeah. So, there's just a little side note. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, interesting. Um, one thing that I, I, I hadn't put on notes, so I hope this isn't too much of a curveball, but something that came up through that conversation around, around gut health, right? Um, so gut health has become sort of flavor in the month. Yes. Uh, <laughs> sort of kind of clinging on to whatever notion or whatever ideology sounds cool at the time. Um, where, where do you sort of start with gut health? Is, is it a big deal? Is it something that we need to be thinking about in terms of, um, you know, how do I support my gut health or do we look at it more as a byproduct of a healthy, well-rounded sort of approach to nutrition? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's definitely become a buzzword, even in the science community, there's a lot of people that are working in that space when they probably shouldn't be working in that space. Um, So it's even, you know, in being in the science community, understanding which, what studies are actually good and which ones aren't. Um, What defines a really good um, gut health is abundance and um, like variety of the gut bacteria as well. And, there's this whole thing about probiotics. So probiotics are bacteria that you consume that improve health, but the literature in terms of well-being isn't great. There's some um, evidence for um, antibiotic-induced uh, diarrhea. Yeah, antibiotic-induced um, diarrhea, which can be helped with probiotics. But in terms of anything else, you're better off having um, eating a variety of fruits and vegetables and whole grains. So the literature says um, 30 plus plant foods a week um, to improve your abundance and variety of the gut. As when, you say, when you say 30 plus, you mean like 30 plus serves? 30 plus um, different. Oh, different. Okay. 
Yeah, and so like plant foods include whole grains as well. So that's like brown rice, quinoa, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's, and I think that's a really important point, um, you know, having that variety because a lot, what I see a lot in the strength community is that chicken, broccoli and rice <laughs> every day. Um, and that's depicted as healthy, but, you know, just change it up, have, have a different vegetable every, every day, mix it up, have at least three different vegetables at every, every meal. And that's, what's going to help with gut health. At, at the end of the day, taking probiotics isn't really going to make a difference. It's the prebiotics you get from fruit, fruits, vegetables, and fiber um, that feed that bacteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, really interesting. Um, it's so funny. Like I, I, in my coach development course, I often make the, make the comment around sometimes coaching a, a whole bunch of people feels like you're talking to a whole bunch of children when they're doing like <laughs> really, really silly things like just, you know, ignoring you or going off program or, uh, you know, saying th- silly things, doing silly things, whatever. And we have to always come back to the fact that we're adults. And when it comes to nutrition coaching, it almost goes back to like, how, how would we teach a grade five person about nutrition? It's like, okay, eat your fruits and veggies. Look at your plate. Are there lots of different colors? If not, maybe let's add some more colors. It's like, that's actually really good advice. If all your food looks white and brown and it looks exactly the same every time you eat it, maybe there's some stuff missing from it. Absolutely. And it's, you know, I always tell my clients, yeah, it's, it is kitty advice. Eat the rainbow, you know, yeah. <laughs> pick a color from every vegetable. And it's, it's that um, variety that's going to really help with gut health and overall health. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I'm finding even people in their sixties, I'm giving people that advice as well. Hmm. Cause it's, it, I feel like everyone wants to know what that one thing is in nutrition that will help them, you know, lose the weight or change it, you know, make everything better, but it's, it's being consistent. It's going back to basics. It's not really overthinking it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think um, we're we're kind of conditioned with, with this abundance of information um, with this, extra abundance of like conflicting information as well. Uh, we're, we're really conditioned to majoring in the minors to being like, Oh, I need to eat this food for this health benefit. It's like, no, that's that, that one food is contributing to a greater system and our priority priority should be, you know, maximizing the benefits of the system and how are we going to do that? Well, again, the kitty advice, right? Lots of whole grains, lots of lean meats and vegetables and colors. And well, it is. And as much as everyone hates on, the the Australian guidelines to healthy eating, um, you know, that's there to prevent disease. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a stat that was done that only 6% of Australians consume the recommended um, amount of vegetables per day, 6%. Mm -hmm. So if we start there, that's a good, good start. And it was also one third of Australians, oh, sorry, um, one third of the energy intake is um, from discretionary foods. So mm-hmm. meaning things that don't um, encompass those major food groups. So things like takeaway, alcohol, sugary drinks, that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. one third of the energy intake, that's a lot. <laughs> so imagine how many micronutrients people are missing out on because they're eating these energy dense foods. Mm. So it's, it is that simple. And unfortunately, dietitians aren't sexy <laughs> in terms of the message that they sell. Um, because one thing about dietitians is we can't actually do testimonials. 
that's um, against our, um, I guess, code of ethics um, because, and yeah, even as a dietitian myself, I don't feel ethically right, you know, I guess promoting, you know, eight week challenges or something like that, because it is, it is a lifestyle change. It is supposed to be wholesome. That can be sustainable for your life. Um, so yeah, there's dietitians aren't sexy, unfortunately, mm. but our, our message has been really consistent. Yep. And so just to clarify, when you say you, when you say things like dietitians can't, uh, you know, uh, promote, um, testimonials and stuff like that, you're, you're talking about accredited practicing dietitians. The acronym is different now, right? Is it different or the, uh, the DAA is different? Yeah. The DAA. So it used to be the dietitians association Australia, but now it's just dietitians Australia. Okay, cool. And, um, for the people, um, that accreditation being, in, it's still an accredited practicing dietitian. means that like you're bona fide, you have done the right study, the right course, and you've got a, you've got an accredited body body saying this person's legit. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And there, there's a whole list of things that we can do or we can't do. Mm-hmm. And testimonials is one of them. And so is there still a database that that's publicly available? Like someone can go to APD or the, the DA website um, and search a dietitian's name to check if they are truly accredited. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the DAA website or dietitians Australia website and also mm-hmm. um, sports dietitians Australia, if you want a sports dietitian. Yeah, cool. And I think that's important to note because there's, there's people that do call themselves dietitians in this industry who aren't dietitians. Uh, or who well, are not accredited. Not good. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's yeah. It'd be like me call, calling myself Dr. Tombro and, you know, yeah. <laughs> PhD in lifting shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, so from there, I, I wanted to, I guess, shift into uh, some more practical advice for people in terms of like where they would start with their basic nutrition. Um, and I had noted things about like uh, working out people's numbers but before people's numbers even come into play like macronutrients and calories and and working out how much you should eat um do you have an overarching sort of uh message outside of just the whole eat the rainbow and eat a range of foods and fruits and vegetables and whole grains and lean meats and etc I mean, it's so dependent on the individual. Mm-hmm. My advice is always individualized. And um, I guess, you know, where I start in terms of my consultations is really looking, I look a lot at food behavior. So um, before I even um, work out calories or macros or anything like that, I need to really work out whether or not that's relevant for that client. Mm-hmm. Um because I work a lot with general population as well. And I really feel like calorie counting is just one tool in the, in the toolbox. And it's, it's a valuable tool and it definitely teaches people um, some really good lessons about um, the energy density of certain foods. But um, I guess it just, yeah, really working out where they're at because there's no point in giving someone um, calorie advice when they don't even have basic understandings of, of macronutrients. Um, and I normally give calories for very, very specific clients. So whether in acute um, cutting phase, so if they need to lose body weight or um, drop body fat for an upcoming comp um, or gain weight um, or... Um, no, that's meal plans. Sorry, I, I would give meal plans for people that are following, 
FODMAP diets. But yeah, they're really the only times and it's, I really try to limit how long that is for because it's just, it creates cognitive load for people. Um, some people are really great at it. Some people love numbers, some people want to do it. But, you know, if we think about, I'm sure you guys have seen um, or you've seen the, the pyramid where it's like calories, macros, micros, yeah. like that. I mean, I personally believe that in the bottom of that triangle, it should be calories, macros, and quality mm -hmm. all in the bottom part. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, the, there's it, – it's not really a, a clear answer because it really depends on the individual. So I can go through, like, what I would do in, an, in a session mm -hmm. – um, if that's useful. So normally dietitians will follow like an ABCD method. Mm -hmm. So A's anthropometry. So what, what their diet history is like, um, what their goals are, that sort of thing. Body fat percentage, I do skin fold testing as well. Mm -hmm. um, B, biochemistry. So looking at their latest blood work, whether or not that's relevant. C refers to clinical. So that's would be um, any sort of clinical implications, like what um, if they've got, you know, ulcerative colitis, for example, or um, their family history as well, which is really important, um, especially you know, if we look at obesity and diabetes. And D, which is diet, um, that isn't just, you know, I guess what they're currently eating, it's who's shopping, who does the cooking, what foods they like, um, what foods they don't like, uh, what their eating habits are like, where they eat. You know, there's all these things that I take in consideration and really provide individual advice based on that because I think one thing that a lot of coaches get wrong is they provide a really cookie-cutter meal plan and don't actually consider the lifestyle of that individual because you have to remember that you guys are working with mums and dads as well and people that live in families and... Um, you know, the environments are different. So making allowances for that's really important. Or if they've got you know, new kids or something like that, you know, they, these people have lives outside of training. And, you know, you have to make sure that, that that information is as suitable for them as much as, much as you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's um, that really, really highlights the difference between someone who's been uh, properly trained in this and between someone who's figured it out. It also kind of um, it stands out to me in in strength coaching as well. The difference between a really high level strength coach with lots of experience and the average coach um, is the ability to step back from their understanding or their personal relationship with that sport or with that uh, thing that they're dealing with. So what I'm getting at is that, you know, what you're saying is you're able to look at it from a whole perspective rather than just like, Hey, I've done strength sports. I've done dieting. Therefore I can give you this advice because that approach is always going to have some element of bias of your experience of that thing rather than being able to step back and be like, okay, well I'm not a mom with three kids that's living on my own. Um, but what are the challenges that this person is is facing and how do I make this thing work for them so they're going to be compliant and, and reach the goals that that they need to reach? Um, and this, this is not just true of working with general population as well. The thing that uh, people often forget or coaches often forget when it comes to coaching this stuff is that you know a coach who's a full-time coach, they live and breathe this shit. 
they're athletes, they're part-time athletes, you know, in strength sports. There's no professional powerlifters or professional strongmen in Australia where um, all you do is train and eat and sleep. Now, people have jobs, people have families, people have to work this stuff around their lives. And um, that, that what you just said really highlights the difference where that training is going to come in so you can get people when they need to go quicker. Yeah, absolutely. And it's identifying those barriers of change, because, you know, I work a lot with um, my majority of clients are females that are, you know, 35 plus that have tried every diet under the sun and nothing has worked. And, you know, I don't prescribe them calories and macros. No, let's talk about food behavior and how mm-hmm. you actually view food and what what's, what the difference is there. And, you know, even the basics of understanding physical hunger versus head hunger mm-hmm. and emotional eating through that. And it's that I find is the most empowering tool for um, these people that I see most of the time. It's like un- identifying their triggers mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, and this would apply to all strength athletes and everyone, anyone that's human is, um, you know, binge eating is perfectly fine to do every now and then because it's a way of numbing emotions some people might do it with food some people might do it with other substances but the problem is when that becomes the only way of coping Mm. and that that's when it becomes a problem and i think that's a really important consideration because if you're prescribing someone calories and macros and as soon as they feel like that they are veering off that and they binge eat and it's like oh, i've been so bad i'm just going to keep like go through this diet vicious cycle they're going to keep going through that cycle of, all right, I've got to count my macros, I've got to be good, uh, not binge eating. And it's, it's so common. And it's like, how can you step away from that and provide them the tools so that they can actually eat in a way that's healthy, that reaches their goals and that's sustainable and that doesn't make them feel like they're dieting. Mm. Yeah, no, I love what you're saying because you're, you're, t- you're talking like a coach. Rather than just rather than just talking about nutrition, you're talking about like, okay, here's a person who we need to teach. Hey, we need to make this process iterative so they understand what they're thinking, what their body is doing around food. Um, so often, you know, nutrition coaches without this psychological understanding are just going like, here's your calories, here's your macros, and in the process, teaching people to associate this food with this number of calories this food with this this particular macro profile and creating this really, really bad relationship with food where food becomes numbers rather than uh, all the other, I guess, intangible benefits around socializing, around family, around health, around all these other things that uh, uh, comes with the beauty of food and cooking and its, its relationship with us as people. It, it removes that humanity and just makes it about numbers and performance, which is going to be detrimental in the long run. It's not how we're designed to work. Absolutely. And I, you know, the whole reason why I became a dietitian in the first place is because I actually love food. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's the majority of dietitians. Like, um, you know, I grew up in a um, my, like new migrant family. And so my grandparents were Russian on one side and they had this beautiful garden just with like fruit trees. And, you know, I picked mulberries as a kid and like my hands were stained and, you know, they made sauerkraut from scratch and all that sort of stuff. And then my Macedonian side of my family, you know, baking fresh bread and all these traditional foods. So food for me, I have the understanding that it's, 
you know, it's more than just, like you said, numbers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we do have emotion to food. You know, we eat to celebrate. We eat to commemorate. It's, it's around us all the time. So my biggest goal with my clients is providing them the tools. And, you know, the best thing that I can tell my clients is they can actually eat the foods that they like mm-hmm. and incorporating that into their meal plan because, you know, eating tasty food that you look forward to is so much more important and so much more, I guess, uh, critical to um, sustainability than, you know, okay, this is healthy, eat your chicken, broccoli and rice. Like, mm. yuck. <laughs> I would never prescribe that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe it's that's the thing. Maybe that's why I became a nutritionist as well. I'm Lebanese and uh, my yeah. grandparents, their, their entire backyard was edible. And, yeah. uh, you know, coming from an ethnic background, you'll, you'll understand this, like the rage that you see in your, in your grandmother's eyes. If you don't take another plate of food, the pain that you're about to experience, if you don't finish your plate or oh, it's a, it's a special thing, food. Um, and on that, <laughs> I'm actually, I work with a lot of clients trying to actually undo that, <laughs> that, that concept of, you know, you don't have to finish everything on your plate kind of thing. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, so playing, playing the devil's advocate a little bit as well. Um, when, when you are dealing with people in strength sports or people listening to this who are in strength sport and who have a vested interest in, uh, in taking control of nutrition via calories and macros and everything like that, um, you know, beyond those, those sort of uh, four points, that ABCD starting point, um, if someone's listening to this and they want to work out where should they start in terms of working, how much they should eat, uh, in terms of actual numbers, where would you start for calories? Um, I normally use the Harris-Benedict equation. Um, there's so many online calculators that you can possibly use. So working out your BMR, um, firstly, uh, which obviously is different for everyone based on age, height, weight, that sort of thing. Um, then adding a activity factor um, that is appropriate. Um, to work out your maintenance and then from there whether or not you want to add or lose weight um, is important Um, so yeah adding it it really depends on how I guess uh, intense you want that to be Mm -hmm. Um, starting moderate is always good and if people are just starting out starting on maintenance is always a really good way to start and really it's um, protein is normally consistent regardless of the goal um, so 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram, uh, I think is the latest advice. Um, and depending on, um, I can say for life stage, uh, for older athletes, so 40 plus, definitely towards that end, um, the higher end, um, because mm-hmm. we know that, um, there's a thing called anabolic resistance as you get older. Um, so your body just doesn't respond to the anabolic stimuli as, as much as it should. Um, and then fats really depending it can be anywhere from 10 to 30 percent of your overall energy intake um, and then the rest is made up by carbohydrates um, i also then provide fiber as well and just making sure that there's variety as we talked about before so yes we look at numbers but food quality is also really important mm-hmm. 
Yeah, cool. So um, let's say someone's working out their numbers using the the Harris Benedict, which is exactly what I use in, in my nutrition coaching as well. Um, you said the word uh, BMR, for those who don't know, that's basal metabolic rate, which is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong because it's been a long time, but basically the amount of calories you burn doing absolutely nothing, just living yeah. and breathing and existing. Then the activity factor on top of that is adding a multiplier um, based on how active or inactive you are uh, to spit out your um, your TDEE, your total daily energy expenditure, which is essentially your maintenance calories to keep what you have. Um, so someone works that out. And to be honest, like in my experience working with uh, nutrition clients and using that as the baseline starter, it, it ends up being really accurate a lot of the time. It's never going to be 100% accurate, uh, but it, it ends up being really close to true maintenance. If you've had experience with it and you're good at like working out what is the true activity multiplier, um, it ends up... Problem. Yeah. yeah, especially when you're relying on self-reported data. So yeah, yes. yeah, I go for five walks a week, week for two hours. No, you yeah. don't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or, or you get the opposite. I get the opposite quite a bit where someone's like, yeah, I go for a light walk, uh, you know, a couple of times a week. Then you find out they're going for some hardcore sprint training like six times a week or something like that. And actually on that, that's where, um, have you heard of Red Syndrome? No. Yeah, so relative energy or deficiency. Um, so it's essentially when people are chronically underfeeding, mm -hmm. um, and it can lead to some really intense health consequences. So, um, if someone is constantly eating under their even BMR, um, which is surprisingly, um, common, especially mm -hmm. if they're over exercising, um, and under eating, um, especially in females, unfortunately, um, whether or not, whether it's intentional or not. It, it really depends. And that can lead to increased um, injury, uh, increased rates of recovery, uh, uh, absence of periods um, for females, um, decreased immune system, that sort of thing. So uh, it, it's pretty common when you see um, people in really heavy training blocks mm -hmm. where their immune system's a little bit compromised. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's really interesting. And uh, I want to come back to that after, after this. So once, once someone works out their, um, their maintenance, uh, if they're going into a surplus or a deficit, uh, where do you suggest they start? Do you use like a, a percentage deficit or a percentage surplus or do you just play by feel based on your knowledge and experience? Yeah, it really depends on kind of, I normally base it on what they're currently eating. So I look at their, I normally assess their diet, their current diet and you know, if they're chronically under eating, we might like slowly bring them back up to maintenance. Um, mm -hmm. Or if they're chronically overeating, um, you know, we don't want to cut calories too quickly. Um, otherwise that will, you know, lead to hunger. And especially as we talked about the emotional side of it, um, that could be quite um, overloading emotionally for them. Mm. Um, so normally start depending on where they're at, you know, maybe even 10 to 20% each way just to begin with first couple of weeks um, and then build up from that. So normally like 25, 30, I, I do percentage usually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, yeah. I really like that you, um, that you base it off percentage. I think that's a, a another thing where inexperienced people go wrong. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll say start with a 300 calorie deficit. I'm like, okay. That's all, that's all well and good for me as a, you know, a, a male with a, a maintenance of 3,600 calories or 3,700 calories or something like that. What happens when you get a female that's, uh, you know, got a much, much, much lower 
uh, maintenance, that's going to be a relatively much higher percentage. And it's the same thing when it comes to, you know, what's a good rate of weight loss or weight gain? Yeah, a kilo a week. A kilo a week? So you're saying that a 160 kilo male losing 10 kilos over 10 weeks is the same as a 60 kilo female losing 10 kilos over 10 weeks? Um, so on that subject, um, when you're looking at, you know, someone who needs to lose weight, uh, what, what's the kind of percentage rate of weight loss that you'd like to see? Yeah. I mean, kind of like what you said, it depends on the size of the individual. And I guess there's a lot of things that I take in consideration. So, you know, if it's a weight category sport, where, mm. where do we need to be? Do we need to be a bit more, um, you know, intense leading up and then back off, um, that sort of thing. But it really depends on the individual. So, you know, I've, I've got this client who is in her 60s and um, has insulin resistance. So weight loss is just, you know, super difficult. Um, so, you know, even focusing on, uh, I guess, non-weight um, uh goals is really important as well if they're not in a weight category sport obviously so you know strength um strength outcomes or how they feel or even going back to that psychology can they stop at one cookie that sort of thing you know those things are a lot more empowering than just numbers on the scale because as you would know it fluctuates day to day and when you get a client that will constantly stand on the scales and say, I gained 200 grams overnight. It's like this diet's not working. I'm just going to, you know, eat my feelings. That's it's detrimental. So, mm. you know, weight loss is really specific to sports. Um, but other than that, for my general pop, I normally don't focus on weight. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. And I, I, I like your answers cause I'm throwing you questions that, you know, sound like they're supposed to be 1% weight loss per week. Um, but <laughs> like with, with anything that's so complex and so in depth as something like nutrition, uh, the answer is always going to be broad. Um, uh, unless you're dealing with like an individual case study, there's so many considerations to come into it. Um, the fluctuation thing is interesting. The amount of times where someone's like, Oh, I gained two kilos this week. And like, this is how much you would have to be eating to gain two kilos of fat like yeah. you would have to be overeating by a shitload to gain two kilos of fat Give me- well it, even just gut contents mm. <laughs> is one of them so fluid that sort of thing so it's yeah, yeah. eating a fiber rich meal the night before can just make make sit in your gut for a little bit longer <laughs> yeah 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 so I feel like I could um, keep picking your brain forever, but in the interest of time, we might have to call it there. Um, we'll definitely get you to come on again for another chat another time. That would be awesome if you're up for it. Uh, where can the people find you? Um, I'm on Instagram. So at nourished underscore by underscore science is the longest tag ever. But yeah, that's where you can find me. Cool, cool, cool. I, uh, we also have four questions that we ask every guest that comes oh, on. Yeah. Um, uh, they're not hard questions, don't worry. Okay. Uh, first question, if, if you could have uh, dinner with anyone in the world and you get to pick their brain on anything you want, they have to be alive right now, who would it be? Oh, oh someone alive. Oh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Have you watched the Trump documentary on Netflix? No. And like the only, I'm not a Trump supporter, but it would just be, 
I would just want to say the like insanity in front of me. <laughs> like I would just want to like really look into his eyes and just be like, what happened to you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, watch watch the documentary. It kind of it it, it uh, follows his rise from like early adulthood up until the presidency and like the things yeah, right. that he's done in business. And I think like same thing. I'm not a Trump supporter, but anyone who's worked out how to manipulate mass media and weasel his way in and, and do crazy things in business has a mind that's like, you just want to know what's inside there. You know, that's, that's exactly why, like, it's not, you know, no respect or anything, but it's just like, how did you get the way? Like, how did you get here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, the, the documentary is actually fascinating. I loved it. Yeah. Um, all right. Favorite lifting memory. Hmm. Um, oh, I'm just trying to think. Well, it's because Strongman, it's, it's really different events. Um, possibly um, last year when I did the Victoria Strong's Woman, um, we did the, is it the Husafel? I can, Husafel, it's like the big yep. coffin thing. Yep. Um, and yeah, I did, I went up, I almost did a hundred meters. Like it was ridiculous. So <laughs> this was, I think about 80 kilos. Yeah. Um, and I just kept on going, kept on going. And then just like my knees, just, I've never <laughs> experienced it in my life. Just the lactic acid in my whole body and my knees just gave in. And I just kind of threw the hoose and fell <laughs> and just like fell to the ground. And it was so dramatic, but like I won that event, but it was just, yeah, that was definitely something that's burned into my brain. Yeah, what a, what a way to finish it. Yeah. Um, what is, uh, what is one piece of it? Let's say nutrition advice that you would give to all the listeners and it can't be get a coach. All the nutri oh, what, nutrition advice to yeah. the lifters. So one, your top piece of advice. Um, I guess it's just, maybe asking if they, you know, reassess whether or not you're enjoying eating what you're eating or if you're just eating it out of necessity and you think that, you know, this is healthy and that's why I'm eating this way. Like, mm -hmm. again, back to that example of chicken, broccoli and rice and how can you make it more enjoyable and more nourishing would be the thing that I would probably suggest for them to look at. Yeah, cool. Love it. I, I always found it funny when people's like, I, I eat for performance, not for flavor. I'm like, that's cool. You're an idiot, but that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. um, uh, I eat for flavor and performance. Yeah. I can have both. Why not? It's always um, <laughs> And the last thing, what is one, one thing that you uh, used to believe, let's talk in the context of nutrition, used to believe super firmly, like you'd fall on your sword for it, um, but you've since completely changed your mind on? Oh, oh, um, <laughs> I guess, um, hmm, I mean, looking at protein, like I know protein very intimately now. Um, <laughs> I guess, um, I mean, I knew this a few years ago, but it was more so before I kind of studied nutrition so intensely as I did, you know, always thinking that more was better. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, as we know, there's only a certain amount of protein that we can actually um, utilize in one sitting. Um, so it's, it's really interesting to even kind of really know that even more intimately, um, at the, even, I guess, micro level, um, that yeah, not more isn't always better. So, you know, having a, a giant steak at, at dinner is not going to really benefit you. You know, you might as well cut the portion out a little bit smaller so that you can, you know, utilize that and use, 
use the energy in the cup and use the energy for other tasty foods like carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Love it. Well, thank you so much for your time once more. Um, and yeah, hopefully we can have you on again in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, that's us. Bye.